Let's pray. Our Father, you have called us and are calling us to leave behind old ways. Your spirit through your word opens our eyes to the old ways that are sticking to us, the ways of this world that, are, that is perishing. We need your healing, Lord. Your word tells us clearly how to live, and your son shows us perfectly who you are. Spirit, do your good work in us to help us follow the example of Christ so we can have no fear of this world, so we can place our hope fully on you, so we can obey you no matter the cost. Help us to follow you closely, not from a distance, treasuring your presence more than life itself. In the life of discipleship, you offer us a life far richer than any earthly bounty. You offer us strength in your steadfast love that no earthly power can overcome. You offer us a family knit closer than any crowds. Give us discernment, Father, to know what it means in each moment of the day to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with you. Our enemy is actively working to cloud our thinking and blind our eyes and stop our ears. Give us clarity of mind, sight, and hearing, Father, that our enemy is not a person or political party or any group of people. Instead, our enemy is a spiritual force of evil that will take any opportunity to divide what you have united. Father, we mourn for the division that the earthly thinking of earthly politics has brought. Because we believe that we were once far from you, we were once not your people, and now in the obedience to death of Christ, we are brought near to you. We are made one with each other and united to you. So we commit this morning to not let any earthly matter divide us from one another. Give us courage to do this, knowing we are united by the gospel and committed to each other by covenant. Teach us to love sacrificially and with vulnerability as you have. Spirit, bring us to full training so we can be like our teacher. Help us to be merciful and generous. Where we have been wronged, help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Let our lives overflow with fruit from the good vine we abide in. Give us humility in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. You can have a seat. Grab your Bibles and you can open up to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And I know that all of you are extremely jealous of me. I get to make comments after an election week. Aren't I lucky? That's great, isn't it? Well, when all is said and done, I wonder how this week will be remembered by the unflattering critic of history. Beyond the ever-present cesspool that is politics... I wonder what history will say about our society. Over the course of this year, it has become increasingly clear that we are a society that focuses on the opinions of others, what the Bible would call the fear of man. And we don't focus on the fear of God. You hear phrases tossed around a lot lately from both sides of the political spectrum, such as cancel culture or mob rule, describing opposing groups that fall along party lines. Our news feeds have been overcome with riots and protests and counter-riots and counter-protests. 
And what is most interesting to me in all of this is that based upon what I've seen in the media, based upon what people have told me, based upon what uh, I've seen myself, there seems to be an unwillingness for each of us individually to take stock of our own opinions and our own politics and see if they do indeed submit to the Word of God. Instead, we've largely become a society consumed with opinions that are less based on what we stand for and what we love, but more so based upon who and what we dislike, who we hate, and what we stand against. Whether it's focusing on the opinion of others to express fear or hatred or anger, the fear of man has become a snare for our culture. Opinions are often no longer based in integrity, character, and a search for ultimate truth. And before I continue, if you're thinking, yeah, Hans, talk about those fill-in-the-blank political party, then you are already missing my point. I'm talking about everyone. Rather, we base our opinions on what group of pundits or celebrities we want to be associated with. And this, at its core, is operating in the fear of man. And that may manifest itself in different ways. It may manifest in wanting the respect of some, but also it may manifest itself in desiring to be seen as the opponent of others and taking glory in that. We've become consumed with and enslaved by the opinions of man. Now, if you're unsure if you operate in this fear of man, a quick way to check is to compare it to one who operates in the fear of God. This is where one cares only what God thinks and bases all speech and all action, not on the mob mentality around you, but on the ultimate truth and law of God that transcends time, culture, and people group. Throughout Mark, one of the prominent but somewhat muted themes that is there as you look for it is the fear of man versus the fear of God. Over and over, Mark portrays various parties concerned not with God's will, but with man's opinion. We see this with regards to the religious leaders and John the Baptist right there in the beginning of the book. John in operating in the fear of God, the religious leaders operating in the fear of man. You see it when Jesus comments on who his true family is, being those of faith and not blood, immediately pushing against the societal norms that you follow those in your family system uh, over and above your relationship with God. We see Jesus fighting against crowds who discard the ritually unclean when, in fact, Jesus goes to them and says, no, I want to heal you, and touches them and heals them. We see Jesus being rejected by crowds often, even in his own hometown, when he speaks the truth of God that they do not want to hear. We see the zealots near Galilee attempting to make Jesus king and take him by force and put him as their commander, calling him into their political mess while he removes himself in order to follow God alone. And even recently in chapter 14, we saw the religious leaders holding off the arrest of Jesus, but they didn't do so for any reason of integrity or character. Look at what it says at the end of verse 2 there. Uh, they wanted to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so this theme has been there throughout Mark. And in the text before us this morning, this somewhat muted theme that's been there is going to come vividly to life in the characters of Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders, the mobs crying out for the crucifixion of their Messiah, and even in the omission of the disciples from the story. We will see in these people such a fear of man that they are enslaved to it and unable to see the freedom found only in walking in the true fear of the Lord. 
At the exact same time, we will see Jesus acting in a polar opposite way. We'll see a freedom that comes from submitting oneself in complete obedience to the will of the Father. In doing so, Jesus finds a liberty that is beyond anything that we humans could make up or come up with for ourselves. Only Jesus here can make decisions without needing to look to any other human being. He knows what to do and what to say based upon the character and the will and the law of God and upon the righteousness and justice that it's at the core of his throne. And so this morning, we will see the bold contrast that Mark puts forward between being enslaved by the fear of man or freed by the fear of God. And that's what we've entitled the sermon this morning, Enslaved by the Fear of Man or Freed by the Fear of God. My hope for each individual in this room or listening or watching online, wherever you might be, is that we can be confronted with the likelihood that we operate in much of our lives out of the fear of man. But in Christ, through the gospel, we have been freed to follow the truth of God, which can bring us a peace that surpasses understanding, even when chaos rages around us. Now, just as a little coincidental thing, I took a little poll after the first service. I had one person say I sounded extremely conservative, one person say I sounded somewhat liberal, and one person said I sounded right down the middle. So, here we go. I know I'm doing my job. I'm making everybody upset. So, let's read the first section of the text here in Mark 15, and we're going to understand this idea of being enslaved by the fear of man or freed by the fear of God. Mark 15, 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. The first thing that we see from our text this morning is the amazing freedom found in the fear of God alone. The amazing freedom found in the fear of God alone. We find ourselves here at the end of this kangaroo court that we looked at last week, this unrighteous and unjust court that is taking political expediency over justice, and they try Jesus with, without actual evidence and, and witness flying in the face of the commandment of God to not bear false witness, and they bind Jesus and lead him away to the Roman governor of Judea, a man known as Pontius Pilate. Now, Rome had taken away the ability of the Jews to use capital punishment, and so the religious leaders know if they want Jesus executed, they have to have a Roman official do it. And we have the existence of Pontius Pilate as a known fact in history. Not only does the Bible speak about him, we have extra biblical evidence, but then also, just for your own apologetics, uh, there's this stone in in the place called Caesarea Maritima there on the coast of Israel. It's called the Pilate Stone. And this stone shows that a man named Pontius Pilate, who was the prefect at the time, uh, did something to um, basically dedicate, uh, they think, a temple to the emperor Tiberius. So we know that this man existed. We know that this was an actual story that occurred. And Pilate's job was to keep order in this part of the empire. And by all accounts, if you wanted to keep order, Israel was not the place to do it. This was the worst place to be stationed. The Jewish people had proven themselves obstinate and rebellious against their occupiers time and time again. And Pilate was no stranger to the uprising. 
We know that he existed there as prefect between about 26 AD and 36 AD. And during that time, he had four major run-ins, three of which were before uh, this point uh, of, of Christ coming to the, the front of the stage. Now, early in his career, Pilate started out by wanting to enforce authority. So he brought in Roman soldiers, all of them with military standards. He had a, a, a statue, a, a bust of the emperor, and he brought it in to uh, the middle of Jerusalem, which was a flagrant dismissal of the Jewish ban on idols and uh, images in the capital. And so the people, they rioted, and the riot moved from Jerusalem to his palace at Caesarea Maritima. He sent out soldiers to put down the riot, and all of the Jews grabbed the swords of, their, of the soldiers and brought it to their necks and said, go ahead, kill us. And Pilate started to back off because he knew this was no way to start your first day on the job, so to speak. On another occasion, Pilate took money from the temple treasury, not realizing what that would do and what kind of riot that would incite, to finance an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. Again, riots ensued, but this time Pilate decided, I'm going to just wipe them out, and he did. And we know of at least one other major conflict that was likewise filled with bloodthirst and, and uh, not righteous in any sense of the word. Luke 13.1 tells us there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This man was not a good man. In other words, Pilate was no friend of the Jewish people. And so it's very ironic that here in this text, he's presented as almost in line with the Jewish leaders. When Pilate came to Jerusalem, as he did during festivals, to make sure order was kept, some archaeologists believe that he most likely stayed in the palace of Herod and booted Herod out to another palace in Jerusalem, and he held court in this place, in the center of this palace, called the Stone Pavement. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. It would have been located here on the map. You can see where it's circled there. And so here Pilate stands, expected to judge Jesus worthy of death, but he hesitates and poses an interesting question to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now on its face, this is just a single question, but in the larger context of the passage and gospel, Mark is using this to make a bold-faced proclamation here. The messianic secret that has been contained in most of Mark is now brought to the forefront, and it's exposed in all its glory. Jesus is indeed the Jewish Messiah. He is the King of Israel. And amazingly, he's not using the Jews to speak it. He's using the Roman prefect. In Mark 14, we saw the connection of Jesus' statement as the Son of God, or excuse me, the Son of Man from Daniel that was given dominion and a kingdom that wasn't ever going to be shaken. And here in Mark 15, this title, King of the Jews, is added to that dominion. And we're going to see it repeated five times in this chapter, King of the Jews, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. Mark will put an exclamation point on the topic as he'll show next time the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus with royal garb. And all the while, it's being affirmed that he is indeed being enthroned as king over the kingdom of God through his death and his resurrection from the grave. Even in the wording of Pilate and Jesus' response, we see Mark framing it so that Jesus is not denying nor really affirming the statement, but it's as if he's posing it to Pilate and then to the readers or listeners, you would do well to answer this question. Are you king of the Jews? Is Jesus king of the Jews? This question is of massive importance to Pilate because while the religious leaders want to kill Jesus because of the supposed blasphemy, Roman officials could care less about religious conflict. 
What Pilate cared about was if Jesus was the leader of a political revolt. Was Jesus a political revolutionary? And this is why we see Luke add this detail into his account in Luke 23.2. Luke adds this wording. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. This is what makes Mark account, Mark's account here so amazingly constructed. In this small, condensed text, Jesus is being put forth in a way that would make the hearers of the gospel again ask that main thematic question we've covered over and over again in Mark. Who do you say Jesus is? Repeat it with me. Who do you say Jesus is? When we look at the rest of the chapter, we're going to see Mark point out who he is and show the blatant disregard of that truth by the rest of the characters that are operating in the fear of man. Look with me there at Mark 15, verse 6. Mark 15, verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, and that word rebels has political connotations, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, that's the Jewish revolt against the Roman occupiers, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Imagine, friends, your Savior and King standing bound most likely already bruised up from the beating he received at the hands of the, the guards with the high priest. And the crowd standing before, built up to a, a frothing passion, yelling, crucify him. Can you even imagine this idea of this mob wanting to crucify the king of the world? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or whipped Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Is Jesus a zealot? Is he a political agitator? Does he belong to Rome? Does he belong to the religious leaders? Does he belong to the zealots that are led by people like this other criminal presented here? Is he a Republican? Is he a Democrat? Friends, the answer to all of them is no. Jesus submits to no one and stands on the side of no one but God the Father and those who are allegiant to him. Amen. At this point in the story, Mark no longer needs to hide the secret that Jesus is the Messiah and King. He instead declares it proudly. And Mark does it in a way that proclaims clearly that Jesus is submitted to no one other than the will of the Father God. And this is part of what makes him the Messiah. You see, a true authority can stand in this place where they do not need to rise and fall to poles. And this is what the Old Testament foresaw in the person that would be Messiah, the ultimate king. 
Would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 40? Psalm chapter 40. And we'll take a look at a passage here that is foreshadowing the Messiah to come, interweaving the ideas of David, a, a human in need of the salvation of God, and the foreshadowing of that Messiah to come, who is salvation. Take a look at Psalm 40, verse 4. Starting in verse 4. Blessed is the man or woman who makes the Lord their trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. For an offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord, great is Yahweh. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought, uh, thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. As I said, this is intermingling the ideas of David as a human, uh, broken king, transgressing king, and the foreshadowing of a Messiah to come. And it's used in the book of Hebrews, specifically verses 7 and 8, to characterize the obedience of Christ in his fear of God and obedience above all else. You see, friends, Jesus didn't lean to the zealot camp. And Jesus didn't lean to the Roman loyalists camp. Jesus had no fear of man, but existed solely in the fear of God alone from which wisdom proceeds. The kingdom he represented and proclaimed caused and causes his followers to have the same transcendent identity above human politics, above egos, above human opinions, and the fear of man. It is true, as we even looked at a few months ago, when Jesus challenged the religious leaders, that Jesus' message was filled with political, social, and economic messages. But all of these were founded upon the truth of God's will and God's wisdom, not man's. This is why he could say in John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In John 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus need not bow to anyone except the sovereignty of God. And in so doing, he is perfectly fulfilling the truth that he is the Savior King mankind needs for the forgiveness of sins. Mark records that Jesus' obedience and willingness to withstand abuse 
and stand as the king of the Jews, it caused Pilate to be amazed and astonished. This fear of God, the Father alone, gave Jesus a freedom to move past the fear of man or fear of pain and death and to instead stand firm in the truth. As we saw last week in the true witness, the true martyrdom of Jesus, what could have been more poignant to display for the followers of Jesus in the first century, the first hearers of the gospel, than to see Jesus stand firm in the face of death and martyrdom? They would have been looking forward to their own possible martyrdom at the hand of the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is presented here to show them what it is like to stand in the fear of God alone and the strength that you can gain from that. Our king found amazing freedom that comes from the fear of God alone. And we that follow him, that truly follow him, we can find that same transcendent freedom no matter what is happening around us. This was true, dear friends, four years ago, and it's true today. So no matter which camp you sit in, whether you were joy-filled or despondent then or joy-filled or despondent today, you can transcend above that to stand firmly fixed in the fear of God. To make this even clearer, Mark again uses a literary contrast with the rest of the characters, and we're going to see in their actions and words, as we just read, the enslavement that comes from the fear of man. You can turn back to Mark, so you've got it there in front of you, Mark 15, and we're going to look at the enslavement that comes from the fear of man. All through verses 6 through 15, we've seen this, and Mark, in his usual consolidated fashion, gives us five groups that are operating under the fear of man. First, we'll just list them out. First, we have the Jewish religious leaders. These men remind us of the fools that we heard about in our reading from Proverbs 1 earlier. They're quick to shed blood and bear false witness because it meets their political ends. In so doing, they prove that they have no fear of God. And yet, even in their sinful desire to shed the blood of an innocent man, they have shown themselves swayed by the opinions of others. Notice what Pilate perceives is the real reason that they do not, uh, that, they, that the leaders, excuse me, give up Jesus to be crucified. It's not truly out of a religious devotion, but because they were envious of Jesus' popularity with the people. Guys, do you think that that plays a role in politics today, envious of being liked by the masses? Right now, you can check if you operate in the fear of man or the fear of God, because some of you are thinking, I'm absolutely talking about one candidate or the other, and I'm absolutely not. This is all politics in the earthly realm, the fear of man. Second, we have Pilate himself. Uh, Josephus and Philo, who are two historians that record this time period, speak to the idea that Pilate was known to be really stiff-necked and insolent. Philo calls him, this is a quote, naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. And he says that he was, quote, stubborn, vindictive, hot-tempered, but afraid that the Jews would report to the emperor his briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, and wanton injuries. Sounds just like a politician today, doesn't he? <laughs> but in spite of these characteristics, that seemingly would make him not bow the knee to anyone. We see him here enslaved to the opinion of the very people he was supposed to govern. And dear friends, I joke, but there are good politicians that love Jesus and are doing their best, I can't even imagine the pressure, of standing in the fray, trying to follow the will of the Lord, and trying to serve those in their areas. And we need to pray for them. We need to pray for them because they need that help to stay firmly founded on Jesus. 
But when I make a joke about politicians, in general, the political mess that we find ourselves is just like this. It's full of grossness that has nothing to do with Jesus. But in spite of these characteristics, Pilate himself, it seems that he would, these characteristics would make him not bow to anyone. But we see him here enslaved to the opinion of the very people he was supposed to govern. You see, men that promote themselves as beyond the influence of men, if they are not firmly planted upon the truth of God's will, will eventually fall prey to the opinion of others, including their sycophants. And they'll reveal their actual character and lack of integrity. And again, dear friends, if you think I'm talking about one or the other, just wait. All will be revealed in time, just as like it has been for the last couple hundred years of our country. Third, we see the crowd. Even within this text, they were outwardly seen as pursuing the popular Galilean rabbi. Just a few days before, many in this crowd may have been hailing him as Jesus entered Jerusalem, but here they're stirred up to crucify him. That's a pretty quick turn. And do you guys notice that when we look at political polls from month to month, it's like over here and then over there, and it's the same thing. It hasn't changed. This angry mob whose emotional ebbs and flows have no logic behind them other than what they are feeling at the moment, this takes center stage. Fourth, do you notice who is completely absent from this part of the story? Any guesses? The disciples, they are gone, having left Jesus because of fear of being punished and killed alongside of him. By their omission, Mark is speaking loudly. And then fifth, and finally, we are introduced to another character in the story, one named Barabbas. Now, this is an interesting character. His name, Bar-Abbas, or Barabbas, in Aramaic and Hebrew, means son of the father. Now, an interesting thing is in the original manuscripts of Matthew, not here in Mark, but of Matthew, there is an interesting item that is translated into the English very similar to what we have in Mark. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus called the Christ? In Matthew, though, in the original Greek manuscripts, it looks like this top line here. And in that top line of the Greek, it actually is literally, woodenly translated, do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus the one called Christ? Now, Hans, why isn't that in the translation? Well, there's a bunch of different reasons, but I looked and looked and looked and I couldn't find any one person who said, this is why our committee on a given translation decided to do this. But it's there in the Greek. You can go look it up. And the reason that he's presenting it this way is Mark is presenting us Jesus called the Christ the one who called out to Abba as the son of the father in Gethsemane, or Jesus called Barabbas, Jesus, the son of the father. The gospels tell us that this man, Jesus Barabbas, was in prison because he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. Now, we might immediately go, yeah, he was a wicked man. But friends, we live in a country where insurrectionists are the ones who brought us our freedom. Don't you think that the people loved Jesus Barabbas? Politically? Absolutely. He wasn't some evil man with horns poking out of his head, standing on the side of the devil. He was a political man. And as we see, did the crowds love him? Absolutely they did. And so Mark is doing this amazing job of lifting up two possible messiahs. One who stands in the fear of God alone and one who stands in the fear of man operating in his political realm. 
Don't you think it's amazing that we stand here in this text today? This means that this was a political revolutionary willing to kill in order to bring freedom to Israel. And he's offered up next to Jesus the Christ, who was instead willing to be killed in order to bring true freedom to Israel. Both, in a sense, are revolutionaries. One in submission to the will of the people, and one in submission to Father God in service to the people. Both are given similar names. And the crowd, seeing the possibility between the two, chose the one that epitomizes their anger, their hatred, and desire for violence against their oppressors. They chose the false Messiah. Mark here is presenting a choice, in essence saying, here is the Messiah that the rioting crowd chose. Who do you choose? Now Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Friends, do you see how every single character except Jesus was enslaved to worldly wisdom and the fear of man. And yet, they had deluded themselves into believing that they each were choosing what was right, that everyone else was wrong and they alone were right. But friends, only the fear of God alone is called the perfect law of liberty. James 1.25 says this, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The fear of man brings nothing but enslavement and internal conflict, especially for the Christian that proclaims to follow after Christ. What an amazing contrast that Mark is presenting to the first hearers of this gospel and that he's presenting to us today. To those hearers deciding for themselves whether they would boldly follow in the martyrdom of Christ or fall to the whims of man, This was a shot in the arm, a shot of courage to help them understand a truth that I want to finish with today. Whatever may come, Jesus is our model and strength to act in the fear of God alone. Whatever may come, Jesus is our model and strength to act in the fear of God alone. Friends, from the burden experienced at Gethsemane to the injustice before the high priest, To the riotous crowds before Pilate, Jesus was facing suffering and trials that you and I can never understand. And yet, even to the cross, Jesus was obedient. Philippians 2 says, to the point of death on the cross. He was acting out of the fear of God the Father alone. To those listening in the first century and to us listening today, Jesus is a model of what it is to stand firm amidst the forces of darkness. Even in moments of trial, and tribulation, and persecution. Jesus models what it is to care about the will of God regardless of what others think. But even more importantly, by his work of salvation and in his death on the cross for you and for me, and in his resurrection from the grave three days later, Jesus performed a work that brought us the forgiveness of our sins against God, the very sin that we wanted to remove him from the throne and put ourselves in the authority And he's brought us reconciliation with the triune God, with our very creator. And as a result, Jesus was able to pour out the Holy Spirit into the hearts of we who submit to his rule and accept his gracious gift of eternal life. Friends, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and King today, 
I would love to talk with you. Ryan is over here. He's one of our elders. Tyler's over there. He's one of our elders. Any one of us, any of the men or women in leadership, Wendy Felix is in the back there, one of our deacons, so is Laura Radke, one of our deacons. We would love to talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus, to stand firmly submitted to him and his kingdom alone. If you're online and you're listening, I would love to hear from you, Hans at missionsalem.com, and walk with you about what it is to move forward in the conversion of your heart and mind to live in the fear of God above all else. And while the various parties here in Mark 15, apart from Jesus, act with the perception that they are in control, they are actually enslaved to the fear of man. Jesus alone, as one commentator put it, is the silent prisoner who has no control, but remains true to his divinely ordained purpose, and thus alone remains truly free. As the word says in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We are safe in the fear of God no matter what comes. Choosing the gospel and enduring within it when the world around you is is driving you to give in, it can only come from the fear of the Lord. And this is what we choose when we choose to submit our lives to Christ. Friends, I know this word fear has been contorted in our society, but it means this, this this understanding that God is so much greater and more powerful than us that he could rightly slay us for our sin. And yet, at the same time, he is so perfectly and powerfully loved that he chooses not to do so and sent his only son to die in our place. This fear is the word respect in our English language with weight applied to it so that when we look to sin, it convicts us heavily. And when we look to righteousness, it pulls us forward in motivation. And this is what we choose when we choose to submit our lives to Christ. I think of Paul's words in Galatians 1.10. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, the second you choose to follow Jesus, you say no to seeking the approval of humans. And this is necessary for us today. Some of you this morning are jubilant and some of you are distraught because of the results of an earthly election which will again happen four years from now, Lord willing. It's no different than when I watch good friends who are just broken up over their team losing the championship and I say, guys, give it 12 months. There's another shot. We're broken up. Some of us are jubilant. Some of us are distraught. But what I want to remind you of is, friends, that with every human leader, whether it be Donald Trump or Joe Biden, with every human leader, there are pieces of them and what they proclaim that will align with God's will and pieces that will not. And I know if you're Democrat, you think there's nothing of Republicans that's Christian. And if you're Republican, you think there's nothing of Democrats that's Christian. Friends, that's just not true. And a Christian can rise above all party lines and say, if you stick to the word of God, Democrat or Republican, then I'm in line with you. But if you step away from the word of God, I will be praying for conviction for you. As followers of Christ, we yearn to operate not just in one issue here or one issue there that seems to line up with the will of God, but we yearn to submit the entirety of our lives to his will. And so where a candidate or a leader is in line with the will and character of God, we will rejoice regardless of their party and support them 
and pray for them. And that where a candidate or a leader is out of line with the will and character of God, we will call for them to align with the will of God and we will pray for them. Amen. Friends, number one application point this week is pray for our current administration. Amen. Point number two of our application this week is pray for the next administration. Pray for Donald Trump and pray for Joe Biden. Lay down your feeling of being enemies and pray that they would govern this nation in a way that glorifies Yahweh above all else. Amen. Screaming crowds, violent mobs, pollsters, talk radio, and cable TV should never set our agenda or tell us who or what to fear. Only the word of God stands as the foundation of our beliefs. So we then strive to uncover the truth and stand firmly upon it. And so application again this morning is this. Not only do we pray, but I want to call us all to humble ourselves in the fear of God. And friends, the way you do this is if you have any part of you that's thinking, yeah, all the rest of the people need to hear this. You know, I'm already in the will of God in my politics or in my views or in my opinions. Then you've missed the entire sermon and you need to go re-listen to it. All of us need to humble ourselves and come to the table of the Lord and say, Lord, change our hearts. Help us to have open-mindedness, not to accept every whim and fancy of the public, but to understand your will and to recognize that even if I've been a Christian for many years, maybe I have something off that needs to be corrected by your word. Friends, this is for those of you who are 15 years old, 5 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old, 70 years old, 90 years old, 110 years old. And if you live to be Methuselah's age, it's still for you. We need to humble ourselves and admit to ourselves that at least to some degree, each of us, myself included, are driven by the opinions of other men and women. The opinions and beliefs of the crowd, the mob, the subcultures we're part of, a given political mindset, or maybe the family systems in which you find yourself. Friends, you can pray for me as your pastor that when I am putting together a sermon like this, I don't sit there at my desk and go, well, I know these 10 people will be mad at me because this point sounds liberal and they're conservative. And these 10 people over here, well, they're going to be mad at me because this sounds conservative and they're liberal. You can pray for me that I don't cave to your whims, that I preach the word of God. But you can pray for one another as well to do the same thing in your daily life. We do not submit to anyone but Jesus Christ. And therefore, those who submit to him, they are our counsel. They are the ones who we seek the word of God with. Realize that giving into the fear of man will leave you open to following after a counterfeit God. So again, you can write these down if you're taking notes. Number one, admit to yourself that you, to some degree, exist in the fear of man. Admit to yourself that to some degree you exist in the fear of man. Yes. Secondly, realize that the fear of man will leave you open to following counterfeit gods and counterfeit messiahs. Realize that giving into the fear of man will leave you open to following after a counterfeit god or counterfeit messiahs. May even lead you to falling after counterfeit morality much as it has caused the crowd before Jesus to do. So not only do we admit to ourselves that we're driven by the opinions of man and humble ourselves, take it to the Lord, we then realize that giving into that fear of man can lead us to follow after counterfeit gods, messiahs, and morality.
Third, once we do those things, we choose to fight back by looking to the will of God. We choose to fight back by looking to the will of God rather than anything else to help us set our opinions. And friends, I know that many of you, I said this to the first service too, I know that many of you are like, yeah, yeah, Hans, every Sunday, the same application point, study the word of God, right? Here's the reason I do it. I say this out of complete love, but yes, some frustration. If I have to have one more meeting where I ask a person what they've been reading and they say, I haven't read my Bible in six months, I'm going to lose my pastoral mind. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you are people of the book. You are Christians. Are you in the word of God? Not just checking off the box of your devotional, but in the word to digest and understand God's principles, God's character, God's rule. Because if you're in the word of God, you will align with the will of God. Study the word of God until it becomes core to your decision making. Learn both the practical commands and the overall principles. I hope you hear my heart in that, my love for you, and my desire for you to know God's will, and and that that overcomes any frustration you hear. But man, parents, think about for a second if you constantly told your children, this is what's good for you, and they did the exact opposite, right? You'd be heartbroken. I'm heartbroken when I hear that people in this body, as much as we love the Word of God, just seem to not get that you need to be immersed in the Word of God. Let's immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Now, when it comes to the weighty matters of the life, number four, okay, not only admit to ourselves and then realize that we can follow counterfeit messiahs and gods because of our fear of man, not only choosing to fight back, looking to the will of God, but fourth, when it comes to the weighty matters of life, I want to challenge you this week to sit down and ask yourself this question, do I hold the beliefs I have because of biblical truth? Do I hold the beliefs I have because of biblical truth? And friends, even on topics where you think, yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe in X, Y, or Z. And of course the Bible believes that. I want you to go look. I want you to sit down. I want you to go find in Scripture why you believe what you believe. Hans, that's going to take a lot of time. Yep, it is. Another way to ask the question is what principles and truths in God's word lead to the beliefs that I have? You see, friends, as Protestants that are the product of the Reformation, we believe in sola scriptura, in the sole authority of Scripture, because it alone should govern our will. And with the election cycle completed, now is the time to take a breath and to step back and ask ourselves, where am I getting my opinion of truth? From CNN or Fox News? From NPR or conservative talk radio? From Donald Trump? Or Joe Biden? Or am I getting it from God's word? I want you to ask yourself, how many hours have I put in listening to sermons and reading the word of God and listening to the word of God versus how many hours I sit in my car listening to angry liberals and and conservatives droning on and on about what they're angry about? I want you to ask that question. Ask yourself the question, do I have core beliefs that are not based on God's word at all. Well, how would I know? You read the word of God. And it may not be a blatant rebellion against God, but merely an indifferent omission of his will replaced instead by what society has told you. Maybe it wasn't even society at large, but what a parent told you or a religious leader told you, like myself, and you just bought it hook, line, and sinker. You never checked it against the word, and now you just go forward. Check those. Is there an opinion you believe 
that is other than God's, or is it God's hard word? Ask this of yourself in your politics, in your views of sexuality, in your opinions on economics and finances, in your view of theology of work, in your view of a theology of social issues and stewardship of the environment, in your views of a theology of justice, in your views of freedom and equality. Where do you get what you believe? And as you answer these questions in community with others, when disagreement arises, be willing to reason from Scripture. If you've got a conservative and a liberal in your discipleship group and you both believe different things, then rather than lob proof texts back and forth at each other and play scriptural ping pong, instead, listen collectively to what the Word of God says and inquire. We have to be people that do this. Have you guys noticed that when they show a Democratic group or a Republican group, they're both carrying flags? Have you noticed that in those groups, lots of people are wearing crosses? So which one's the Christian group? You never know until you search it out. Because neither one is operating fully in the will of God. We must be a people that strive together to seek the will and wisdom of God. And even when we think we've got it, we continue to search God's word in order to see if we've gotten it wrong. And it's in the fear of God alone that we find the beginning of wisdom. And if we stand firm on the will and wisdom of God, as Jesus did during the Passion Week, we will find ourselves transcending above all difficulties that we might face and endure anything that comes our way. So if you're looking at the next four years and going, oh, yes, finally, peace. Or if you're looking at the next four years and going, oh, my gosh, this or that is going to happen and the world's going to crumble. In either case, you can meet it with the truth of God's will. It was in this spirit that the author of Hebrews encouraged the first century believers who lived their life in the fear of God and in the hope of all that this truth has promised, in spite of suffering difficulties, they were able to rise above it all. And so I want to read to you from Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just read it to you. And I want you to hear the encouragement that the author of Hebrews gives them. This is Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, and we'll finish with this. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Those were people that were in prison because of their Christianity. And you joyfully accepted, get this, guys, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I don't know how well that flies in the United States. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. No matter what comes in the days and years ahead, brothers and sisters, whether political turmoil or international pandemic or complete peace, it may be, let's be those that stand firm in the face of adversity and keep our hearts steadied in the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. And in doing so, we will no longer be enslaved of the, to the whims of humanity around us, but instead we will be free in the fear of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.